Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom in Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author <laughs> Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host here, Kansas City, Missouri for this edition of The Gifts of Freedom, coming to you over triple W, thegiftsoffreedom.com. And please don't forget that these shows are archived and are available for free via iTunes at blackhistoryuniversity.com. Leslie also has another site, triple W, buriedblackhistory.com. Tonight we're going to be talking about the 50th anniversary of the terrorist attack on the 16th Street Baptist Church, Birmingham, Alabama, and talking about those four girls that lost their lives and the one that survived. The four that lost their lives were Carol Robertson, Denise McNair, Patty Mae Collins, and Cynthia West. Joining me tonight is my guest, Leslie Joy Allen. Ms. Allen is a fourth-generation native of Atlanta, GA. She's a historian and educator. She holds Bachelor and Master of Arts degrees in history from Agnes Scott College and Georgia State University, respectively. She's also a ch- uh, charter member of Agnes Scott College's Alpha Theta Psi chapter of Phi Alpha Theta National History Honor Society. She's a former Coca-Cola Foundation Museum Fellow at the Atlanta History Center. She currently is a doctoral student in the History Department at Georgia State University, specializing in 19th century history of the American South, anti and post bellum. 20th Century Georgia History, Atlanta History, and Performance Arts History with a specific emphasis on theater. Welcome, Joy. How are you tonight? I am doing just fine, Preston, and thank you so much uh, for inviting me um, to participate uh, this evening. Uh, Looking forward to uh, a good dialogue about a very um, tragic but significant um, part uh, of our history that, um, no matter how painful it is, needs to be revisited. Okay. And uh, tell our audience a little bit about this event coming up at the Kennedy Center. I believe it's the uh, September the 15th. Yes. It'll be a lot uh, of reading. Yes. Uh, it's going to be a... The girls. Yeah. It's going to be the Christina Ham play. Uh, it's a staged reading of the play. It is streaming... Uh, live online. You can access it at kennedy-center.org. Uh, it starts promptly at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. 
Um, it's um, promoted and initiated by a wonderful organization called Project One Voice uh, that was founded by a good friend of mine, Erish McMillan McCall, um, who has been sort of on this crusade uh, not only to preserve uh, the rich heritage of black theater and black playwrights, but also to, I would say, reconnect uh, that heritage um, with uh, history. And so uh, in that effort, he has um, connected Project One Voice with Howard University, uh, African Continuum Theater, um, of course, the John F. Kennedy Center uh, for the Performing Arts. I hope I'm not leaving anybody out here. Um, it's going to be directed by Felicia Rashad, for those of you who are familiar uh, with um, the Cosby Show. Um, she has um, taken quite a very positive uh, turn as a director. And, of course, the students from the Duke Ellington School of the Performing Arts, which is another partner, uh, they will be doing um, the staged reading. It is targeted towards uh, younger audiences. Uh, it is not specifically about the bombing itself but is instead about a, rather a celebration of their lives. And I think in some respects, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, um, it is a painful reminder uh, of what we lost because we had um, one young lady who was 11 and the other three were 14. So these th four young women uh, never reached adulthood. But it is one of... Project One Voices, as well as Christina Ham's way of making this real again. And September 15th, this Sunday at 6 p.m., this will be the 50th uh, anniversary uh, of that 16th Street bombing. Okay, and before we uh, go further, uh, the original music, I understand, is by Catherine Bostick? Yes. Do you know if she's related to Earl Bostick? I honestly don't know, and I'm I'm very leery about making these uh, last name connections. I have no idea. Um, I'm related to two unrelated sets of Allens, so I get asked all kinds of questions. I really don't know. Um, that would be a question for um, Irish, but uh, we do have. It is a. Um, it's been a very. It's a big collaborative uh, effort. I came on board a little late to this. Um, I think he, uh, Erich was looking for some kind of feedback um, from a historical perspective, uh, and I'm very glad that uh, he's doing it. Uh, I'm very glad to be uh, associated with as a consulting historian for Project One Voice for a variety of reasons that we can talk about uh, a little bit later, but more importantly, um, that phrase, arts and humanities, um, takes on uh, its real meaning when we combine uh, both academia, uh, the theater, our libraries, and our churches. Um, as I think I mentioned to you once before, it sort of takes me back to um, the way, the manner in which uh, I was raised um, here in Atlanta, where you had a very broad community that was filled with preachers and teachers and scholars and actors and dancers and musicians and it was most things were a big collaborative effort. Uh, what Project One Voice and I think what Erish is trying to do is take that big collaborative effort 
uh, into the 21st century, and I would dare say into the information age. As you probably know, most young people get spend most of their time text messaging and checking their cell phones and jumping on and off the internet. This is a way to bring theater to them, and for some. For some individuals, this might be the very first time uh, that they've ever experienced uh, black theater. And for this particular production, uh, it becomes more than just simply black theater, but it also becomes a history lesson. Exactly. Uh, yeah, it becomes a history lesson. So uh, that piece of, as a historian, I mean, there's there's no way I could, uh, I would be hard-pressed not to want to be uh, involved with this in some capacity. And Erish and I typically have our usual three- and four-hour marathon sessions about all the different things that can come up. Uh, and as best can tell, um, at this date, there's roughly about 80 black theater companies and black organizations that will be presenting readings on the same day simultaneously. Um, so I think across the country, and I think, and I think we have a few uh, that are overseas. So this right. is, for lack of a, a of an official national event, which I actually think um, this actually deserved. I think Project One Voice has done extremely well uh, with getting the message out there. And our listeners can also stream the video live. Is that correct? That is correct. They can stream it live from the, all they need to do is maybe a couple the same way I called into uh your show. Uh probably call, uh, probably log on to Kennedy uh it's K E N E N E D Y dash center dot org O R G a couple of minutes before six PM. Uh I think if memory serves me correctly, there will be a little thing that will pop up uh that will say, you know, click here to access it. And you can watch it at home. Uh, you can watch it from your smartphone. I don't own a smartphone, so I don't know how <laughs> they do that, but um, it is accessible uh, from any computer. As long as you have uh, Internet access, you can actually watch it live. Or depending on where you are, there may be some. I do know that there is a um, reading, a stage reading of it at the King Chapel, uh, here at uh, Morehouse's uh, college campus, uh, directed by uh, Elizabeth and Afimo Omalami. Uh, they will be, that will start at 6 o'clock. Um, I don't know what the uh, the seating is like at this particular uh, date, but you can visit uh, Project One, uh, projectonevoice.org, that's P-O-R-J-E-C-T, uh, numeral one, V-O-I-C-E dot org. Uh, and click on um, the links. I can't tell you which. I'm not looking at my computer screen, but there is a section where you click on the state, and you can find uh, which theater companies or organizations are actually participating. And that is the whole premise of Project One Voice, to have all of these organizations and all of these theater companies doing the exact same piece on the exact same day at the exact same time. Uh, which is a great concept. I want to set up a timeline here before we get into exactly who these young ladies were. Mm -hmm. What's going on in Birmingham, Alabama, 1963. May 2nd, thereabouts to the 7th, Martin Luther King uh, had his crusade, his children's crusade. Mm -hmm. There were 3,000 or more children arrested. Yep. August of that year. 
um, we had the march on Washington, and uh, King delivered his I Have a Dream speech, also made reference to that children's uh, crusades bail money, mm-hmm. uh, lasting back to Birmingham, Alabama. Mm-hmm. Come September 15th, the bombing, four girls killed, yeah. 16th Street Baptist Church. So that led up to it. So go ahead, can you go into a little detail and tell us a little bit about these four girls? Um, well, you have, um, of course, Carol Robertson, Addie Mae Collins, who had a sister. I've had a couple of people who have asked who is the fifth girl, and that is Sarah Collins Rudolph. That is her name now. Uh, she survived, but she lost uh, an eye. Um, you have, of course, Denise McNair, who was the youngest at the age of 11. And then you have the case of Cynthia Wesley. And uh, I have to say now that I've been contacted uh, by Cynthia Wesley's uh, brother, whose name is Fate Morris, uh, who has informed me uh, that that is not her accurate name, that um, she was Cynthia Diane Morris, uh, she went to stay with the Wesley family, according to his version, uh, through the week uh, to go to school at a particular school, and she came home um, on the weekend. Um, both he and I think uh, Sarah Collins Rudolph, um, just between you and I, I think they've been a bit ignored. Um, there have been several interviews of them. Originally, they were not um, going to accept the recently given congressional medal uh, to the uh, to their uh, si- uh, siblings. Uh, but and what will that be happening? When will that that be happening? I think has already happened, and I actually already. missed it. Yeah, it's so much that has been going on um, this week leading up to this. Um, and I must share, uh, I am a historian, but I would would be less than remiss. Uh, than saying that historians make mistakes. When I wrote my blog, I inadvertently put the the age of Addie Mae Collins down as 10. I don't know where I got that number. It might have been fatigue. It might have been just a simple slip of the key. Um, I typically go back and revisit my blog, and just when I saw it, I said, oh, my God, I need to change this child's um, age. And I looked, and I had a message from uh, Sarah Collins Rudolph that I had the wrong age of her sister, but it turned out to be, um, for lack of a better way of putting it, um, one of the best mistakes I ever made, because shortly thereafter, uh, I received a message from Fate, his name is F-A-T-E Morris, uh, which is the brother of Cynthia Diane Morris, uh, who is recorded in um, most books, most newspaper reports. Uh, as Cynthia D. Wesley. Uh, She was living, according to him, through the week with them. But uh, his sister, uh, Eunice R. Davis, uh, I think back in 2002, uh, had um, her death record amended. Um, So we have a a legitimate um, historical, I won't call it a dilemma, but I will say that I think we need to revisit um, these deaths. Uh, he sent me both 
PDFs of the amended uh, death certificate. The state of Alabama has changed uh, her name uh, back to Cynthia Diane Morris, uh, who is the daughter of Charlie Morris and Estelle Merchant Morris, and she was originally recorded uh, as the daughter of Claude Wesley and Mrs. Gertrude Turner Wesley. Um, the only thing that I can possibly interject here, and this is purely conjecture because I don't think we have uh, all of the facts yet, um, Fate Morris was 11 years old when his 14-year-old sister was killed. Um, so I am quite convinced, I mean, there's no other way than to describe it other than the fact that I'm sure he was traumatized uh, by this. Uh, but uh, we don't have... Um, we've had several individuals that I, I don't even know who have said, well, we thought that Cynthia Wesley was adopted. Uh, he said that she was not. Um, but we do have a big question mark now, and that question mark is is that if she wasn't adopted, if her name really wasn't Wesley, uh, if her name was indeed Morris, uh, why has it taken this long uh, to get this corrected? Uh, you mentioned um, the children's campaign uh, that yes. Martin Luther King Jr. was um, running, and we had something like 3,000 children, uh, I think, or more, that were uh, participating. Um, the Birmingham uh, quickly let everybody know that they didn't mind putting black children in jail. Um, and Martin Luther King Jr., for folks that did not uh, ever see the full I Have a Dream speech, um, this past, on the anniversary of the of the March on Washington, uh, MSNBC, I do know, ran the speech in its entirety in, in three uh, different segments, I think, right after the, the official ceremonies were over, or late into the evening, which I was very glad that they did, because we all tend to hear the speech in snippets, but he does make, Martin Luther King Jr. does make very, very pointed. Uh, he was always eloquent um, in, in some respects, but uh, he does make some rather pointed statements about Birmingham in that speech. And 18 mm -hmm. days later, uh, you have the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church. And the 16th Street Baptist Church uh, was one of the churches that had begun to be very uh, participatory um, in a lot of activities that were going on uh, in Birmingham. Uh, we, we cannot leave out Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth, who, for lack of a better way of putting it, uh, is really partially responsible in more ways than one for the sort of national program that, that Martin Luther King Jr. eventually comes up with. Shuttlesworth had been uh, working in Birmingham for improvements uh, ever since um, the mid to late 40s. He's one of those unsung uh, individuals. But I think when you get back to the issue of children, um, I've heard individuals say, well, the people that planted the bomb, I doubt very seriously uh, if they knew uh, that children were in the church. And I think the bomb went off um, a few minutes after 10 a.m. on September 15th. Well, anyone that is born and raised in the South, white or black, uh, who is Protestant, uh, typically know that Sunday school uh, precedes uh, the church services in, in most instances. So whether they were 
specifically targeted, whether it was a deliberate attack designed to assault our children or not, I can't say for absolute with absolute certainty, but just between you and I, you'd have to be a moron not to know that there were that that there weren't children, that there were and you'd have to, to 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 convince me that you didn't know that there were children inside of that building. Uh, then you also have the rather um, almost uh, in in light of the catastrophe, the rather callous behavior of uh, of Birmingham's police. You have uh, a boy. I'm looking for his name now. Um, uh, Johnny Robinson. Johnny Robinson. I think he was 16. Uh, who is throwing rocks um, at some uh, white youths. Um, he is ordered to stop by the police, and he's shot in the back. You have uh, another boy, Virgil Wade, age 13, who's shot and killed just simply riding his bicycle. Um, and the most recent data uh, uh, suggests that he was simply targeted uh, by another carload of white youths. And you have, um, if if you look at some of the initial uh, news reports, you have one of those rare instances where Martin Luther King Jr. is very visibly uh, angry. Uh, he accuses Governor George Wallace of having, he has the blood of these innocent children on his hands. Um I have a lot of folks that say, well, this galvanized the movement. Um, I was three months away from turning three years old uh, when this took place. Um, I'm a late-born baby. Uh, I remember hearing my parents talk about this. Um, And one of the things that was said is that this moment was when everybody took a real pause because there's a couple of things that you can do. Uh, when people are murdering your children, you can say, I give up, I'm going to go somewhere, I'm going to sit myself down, and I'm going to live out what little I have of the rest of my life. Or you have another response, and that is where people say, you know, you've taken everything but away from me but my own life, so there's really not much left for you to take so I might as well dig my heels in. And this is the, that's the, I don't think the terrorist, and that's what they were, white racist terrorist. I don't think they thought that that would be the response. And do you, um, think, these, do you think these terrorist acts, um, just before that bombing, there had been um, the desegregation of preschools there in Birmingham? Um, that might have set these terrorists off. I have little. I, I think all of it. I think I don't think we can necessarily pinpoint. Uh, that's one of the things that historians have to be very uh, careful about. Um, and I have to tell folks um, we don't chronicle. Uh, a historian puts forth a hypothesis or a thesis. This is why we think this happened. This is how we think this happened. This is why. Uh, we think this happened. That's why you have 42 million books about the Civil War. There there are as many angles, perhaps, as there are historians. I think it was a combination of factors. One, 
Um, you had had, even though Bull Connor, I think at one point was on his way out, um, you have Governor George Wallace, who for all practical purposes, for, for those of us who've really studied him, Wallace never really was the kind of virulent racist that he's been depicted as. He was a political opportunist. Uh, he lost a campaign because to a man that simply uh, was a greater segregationist and told everybody how much he hated black people, and Wallace said, well, okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm not excusing what he did, nor saying that he did not. Exactly. And, and I'm not excusing him for being racist, but Wallace simply looked at it. He ran his political campaign. There's some wonderful books by Dan Carter who has studied Wallace uh, in ways that other people have not. Uh, but Wallace sort of dug in his heels, and this is the way he he wins his way to the governorship of Alabama. But the problem was is that uh, segregation, or I should say in, the integration of schools, was a problem everywhere. Birmingham, for reasons that I'm not sure we'll ever fully know, allowed um, its rabble-rousers, allowed its... Um, prejudices, and I would dare to say good sense to uh, let the city turn into what uh, it reached the nickname of Bombingham. The people forget exactly. the 16th Street Baptist Church is like the fourth bombing in like, what, three or four weeks. I've, I, I've honestly lost count. So you have... There were about 50 bombings there in Birmingham, uh that started right after World War II. Yes. Most so of which, that's where it got its nickname, Bombingham. Yeah, yeah so you have uh, this. You on, before you go on, Joy, you mentioned mm-hmm. a book by Dan Carter. What's the title yeah. of that book? I'm trying you know, to remember. Right? He's done two or three. Let me see if I can pull it up right quick for you. It's one, um, I'm sure George Wallace's name uh, is in it, but you'll have to forgive me, but I've had to go through roughly... 100 books in preparation, so sometimes these things sort of run together. But if you do a search for uh, the historian Dan Carter, you should be able, I'm going to find it in just a moment for you, um, and George Wallace, you should, because he's done more than one uh, about him. It's Dan Carter from George Wallace to Newt Gingrich. That's one where he analyzes... Um, uh, the right, and there's one more. I will find it momentarily. Um, that is his most recent one. He also has a um, text. Also, it's called The Politics of Rage. R-A-G-E. Politics like, of Rage. Of Rage. And basically, um, he traces how Wallace uh, this is also why we have to be very careful when we are um, watching and 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 following certain politicians. Politics can be very uh, peculiar uh, in ways. Of course, this was a very destructive way. You have George Wallace who's standing in the door, you know, of the university. You know, segregation now, segregation forever. And to be honest with you, it was more uh, posturing. Uh, than anything else. He was perfectly willing to do it. I don't think, to be honest with you, uh, that I think he underestimated 
what white Southern racists would actually do. And I think, I also think Martin Luther King Jr., um, Shuttlesworth, members of the SCLC, I think they underestimated what white Southern racists would do. Because um, these are children, and a part of the logic of using children uh, is to demonstrate, you know, this is these are the things that our children want. They want a better education. They want to go to school where they, where they want to go to school. Um, people have argued that for most, and for most people, it's a lot harder if you have to kill somebody. It's supposed to be, for most of us, a lot harder to kill a child. It's supposed to be a lot harder to throw a child in a jail cell. But um, I think the message was, you've got all these 3,000 kids together. We've had this issue of, of desegregating three schools. You've gone to Washington and you've had your, for lack of a better way of putting it, your kumbaya moment with everybody dipping their feet in the pond and you've got black people and white people and people of all shapes and sizes singing and America looks glorious on August 28, 1963. And then in 18 days, somebody blows up the 16th Street Baptist Church and they kill four girls. They put the eye out of one girl. We have the police kill one boy because the boy that does not stop is actually shot in the back for throwing well, a number of, A number of black people had taken to the streets after following that bombing. Had a bit yes. of a riot going on, did they not? Yes. This was not, um, I think, one of the things that, that sort of gets downplayed is that black people in Birmingham, as, as they were in many other places, um, quite prepared. You have killed our children. So, as I said before, that there, there are two ways of approaching that type of grief. And for most parents, I think about some of the things that I've heard my mother and father say, about what they might do to someone uh, if they were to harm me. So you had a situation where um, it backfired. It didn't do much for the families of the, these four girls, but um, you have people ready to riot. First of all, you have people that are rushing towards the church. Uh, I think Fate Morris, the, the brother of Cynthia Morris, recorded as Cynthia Wesley, um, has said that he rushed in that direction. Um, so I can't, um, we don't have every all of the facts yet about this. That's another thing that I think um, that I find a little bit disturbing. Um, even though we've had a documentary, I think I mentioned to you that I never watched the full documentary that, that Spike Lee did. There was just a moment where I just couldn't watch it anymore. Um I think we said four little girls so often until they've sort of been morphed into these four martyrs. Um, but we do have to remember that um, these were, uh, they had siblings, they had friends, they had parents, they had classmates they liked, maybe didn't like, they had quirks. They don't, as much as we want to claim them as, our own, they actually belong very personally uh, to some other people. And I think 
um, one of the things, sometimes it's a disadvantage being a historian because when you see new information and it contradicts the written record so far, uh, Mm -hmm. you're sort of impelled. Uh, I have no... Uh, relationship to uh, anyone, any any of these families. I have no particular vested interest. But when I received these things, the first thing that struck me was is that how does this? How is this? How has this been going on so long? And and Mr. Morris has said that for the last ten years he's been trying his best um, to sort of get a public hearing. You know, my sister's name was not Cynthia Wesley. It was Cynthia Morris. And uh, I find something rather odd about that, the fact that um, we haven't, that hasn't been addressed uh, by anyone uh, in a a real uh, um, capacity where people actually know about it. Because let's, Mm -hmm. let's face it, you have 50 years of data that has recorded uh, this young woman's name uh, a certain way. So I have to say, too, that there is um, one of the things that sometimes we don't like to talk about um, are the ways in which um, black activists, Martin Luther King Jr., as, as well as others, were sort of forced into creating certain narratives in order to better present what it was we were trying to do. Uh, there are plenty of people out there that don't know that Rosa Parks was not the first woman uh, that year to refuse to get up uh, when asked to give up her seat to a white person on a bus in 1955. And so that was a 17-year-old? Yeah, yeah Claudette Colvin. And what a lot of people honestly don't know, though, is that um, the money being collected for Claudette Colvin's legal defense was being sent to Claudette Colvin, care of Rosa Parks. So she didn't, that, that's a, it's a misconception that Rosa Parks enters the scene. What, what I'm suggesting here, though, is that because Rosa Parks had an unimpeachable and impeccable record, she was respected, uh, respectable, um, she had been not just a secretary for the NAACP, she had been an investigator, had been an investigator for decades um, at, with it doing rather dangerous work, I might add, with the NAACP. She, was, she knew a lot of white Southern liberals. Um, the uh, attorney Clifford Durr and his wife Virginia Durr and Rosa Parks and her husband, they were all on a first-name basis as opposed to there was no Mrs. Durr and Hello Rosa. Uh, these were friends. That's who helped get her out of jail. But this is also who helped get Claudette Colvin out of jail. Claudette Colvin, on the other hand, was a student. I think someone, I don't know how true it is, someone has, had said that they thought she might have been pregnant. Uh, other reports have said that she used really, really foul language. And at that time, it might seem a little bit strange to those of us living in 2013, but at that time, what they were looking for was a black person, preferably a black woman, because a black man would have been killed, uh, literally, uh, a black woman that had an unimpeachable character, and they said, this is what your segregation does. Why should a woman like this be forced to give up her seat, and why should she be arrested? And Rosa Parks 
rather than Claudette Colvin. I've, I've since forgotten there was another woman that they didn't want to use. But what I'm interjecting here is that uh, some of these narratives have been in part uh, influenced by class. Um, one of the things that struck me, I don't know whether it's any – uh, um, whether it's valid or, or invalid, but the Wesleys that Cynthia Diane was staying with, they were both school teachers. Uh, when I looked at the uh, PDF um, copies of Fate Morris's and Cynthia Diane Morris's birth certificates, uh, in one their father is listed as common laborer, and in another one he is listed as laborer for a furniture company. Um, and even though school teachers have never made the kind of money that I think they deserve, uh, being a school teacher certainly had in the black community then a little bit more respectability. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can hypothesize that it's quite possible um, that the Morris family was simply sort of not necessarily overlooked, uh, but maybe, and this is just a hypothesis, maybe just simply sort of said, you know, it will look better if we do it this way. And uh, let, me, uh, let me interrupt here for a moment. We have uh, callers on the line, and I want our callers to stand by. Yes, uh, please. And we will get to you. Um, but I want to, uh, you were mentioning uh, various classes of people there in Birmingham. Condoleezza Rice is going to be part of this uh, presentation. She's a native uh uh, Alabamian or Birminghamian, yes. and would you say that she was a typical black Birminghamian type person, Condoleezza Rice? Well, I'm not from Birmingham. I do know that Condoleezza Rice's father um, was, um, I don't want to cast unusual dispersions, but by most accounts he was not uh, a big supporter of Martin Luther King, Jr., uh, she probably was a typical uh, preacher's daughter if she, if her father had an affluent church. Uh, she obviously lived very well. Um, she obviously has been affected by this. There's no way, regardless of one's parents' politics, that you can... She was a girl when this took place. Uh, it was obvious uh, why these girls, why this church had been bombed. Um, I don't know if she was a typical Alabamian, but I will say that black people at that time were walking a very thin line because on the one hand, um, you were trying to, shall we say, ease some things from the white man's grip so that you could do something with it. But the reality was is that if that white man thought you were simply riffraff or not worthy of it, uh, that was a very big deal. Uh, we don't talk as much about class issues uh, in the black community, but Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, was not poor growing up. He didn't care anything about money as an adult, but he came from, he was the son and grandson of two of the most prominent pastors of one of the wealthiest black churches uh, in Atlanta. That was Ebenezer Baptist Church. And all anyone really need do is take a visit to uh, his home, which is in the, the, the what they call the, the historic district near Ebenezer, and take a look at the house and that they all lived in. So we do have this issue. I'm not saying that necessarily 
people in the civil rights movement were necessarily condescending to poor people. But I think it is worth pointing out that at one point before Martin Luther King Jr., the, 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 the April 4, 1968, when he is killed, I don't know who said it, but someone had said that, a couple of people have said, you don't need to be bothered with this. We've got to do something else. All this, all these people are garbage workers. Mm-hmm. And so Martin says that's exactly why we have to go. So those, I don't know if this is a factor, but I do think that it's worth discussing. I think we have a hundred stories to tell. We still don't know uh, what truly happened, really, with the two boys that seem to have been uh, killed for nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned um, Martin Luther King being somewhat of a privileged class, and uh, I'm thinking that he took over the church there in Montgomery, Alabama, from Vernon Johns. Mm-hmm. That's a story that's not very well known. Do you think that part of King's prestige uh, his family prestige kind of eased Vernon Johns out of that pastorate of that church in Montgomery? No, not at all. And there are two reasons why I can tell you why I don't think that was the case. Uh, Vernon Johns was, um, I, I, I've seen characters like him before. Vernon Johns was absolutely brilliant. Um, he was as well educated as Martin Luther King Jr., but Vernon Johns was not able to be what I call the diplomat. Um, he softened up that congregation, though, because by the time that Martin Luther King Jr. gets there, um, I've heard Martin Luther King Jr. described as an introvert, extrovert, by people that knew him very well. He was one of these kinds of kids uh, that would defy his father, but he would agree with everything his father said and then go right ahead and do whatever it was he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. He had the capacity. This was a young man, age 26. He graduated Morehouse at 18. He had a Ph.D. by the time he was 26 years old. But he would also go somewhere and shoot pool. I know this because I, I, my one of my play uncles that's deceased now, Uncle Larry, that's what they did. And, and I, I got very tickled when I saw the pool table uh, in Uncle Larry's basement. Um, most people don't know that he smoked. Um uh, there was this sort of he had a unique ability uh, to at to be in in one in, instance the best and the brightest while having the capacity to talk with anybody on the street. We don't find a lot of people like that anymore. We find people that, that you get a PhD and pretty soon you can't understand Adam. You know that's that's on the mm-hmm. corner. Martin Luther King Jr. had what my mother would, would refer to as the common touch. That doesn't mean he didn't have flaws. That doesn't mean he didn't have biases. But he had this capacity to handle the very big egos that he had to manage in the SCLC. We had some gigantic egos in there. These were not men that just did what you told them to do just because you said do it. But he was able to do that. You don't find too many people that can manage in that capacity. You don't find too many. Martin Luther King Jr. was worth, uh, I think, under $6,000 when he died. I think he had three suits. And he Martin Luther King had three, he had three suits when he died. Had, 
Yeah, had about three suits and maybe the estimation is that his actual personal worth, not discounting house and what have you, was about $6,000. That's how little he cared about money. So we it so you have the 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 boy that is to the manner born. Your grandfather, Reverend Williams, your father who inherits the church, Mary after he marries Alberta Williams. And then you have you, you're in this big, warm household, you have plenty of room, you have plenty of clothing, you have plenty of, of, of food, and somewhere along the way you make the decision that my life isn't worth living unless I can sacrifice these things and do something for the rest of humanity. I think that alone qualifies him as unique um, among a lot of individuals. He didn't have any money. Yeah, and uh, so he was legitimate when he was admonishing black folks for spending so much money on liquor oh, and oh, yeah. and and whatnot, and not yeah. putting enough money into the cause. Yeah, so that was, that was uh, not a that was not a um, that was not a, a, I don't want to canonize him as a saint because I don't think. Uh, he liked that, and I think um, uh, he was sort of boxed in. We had a lot of uh, of great guys, though. Uh, Hosea Williams, one of my favorite people, was was I think one of the reasons why we love him so much in Atlanta is that he let his foibles show, but he went on and did the work that um, he thought should should be done. He never tired of feeding the hungry. In fact, Elizabeth's actor, Elizabeth Omalami and her husband, Afima Omalami, two of the most talented people that we have in the city, are still running Hosea's uh, Feed the Hungry. Uh, their their People's Theater was originally uh, uh, a, a, a vessel for um, for promoting, you know, uh, economic justice. This is why I got so excited when Eris said, we want to do this play, we're trying to get kids to this, we're trying to take the tech, use the technology in ways that will pull them in. It was very much a reminder of what theater and history and academe and all those things, all those things were working together when I was coming up in the 60s and 70s. we become, all of us have become a little bit more insular now. And it's hurting all of the disciplines, uh, not just the arts. Uh, it's hurting the humanities. Uh, there's some I hear historians all the time talk about. You know, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir, and my response is, "You are, because the only people you're talking to right now are historians." So I've been encouraged. I've had some great, great, great teachers at Agnes mm-hmm. Scott College. I've had a few at Clark, and and many, many at Georgia State that have encouraged me and has encouraged us all. You need to take history back out there where it's supposed to be, and that's what the arts are about. And so when we talk about people like Martin Luther King Jr., he would have perfectly understood uh, what I'm doing because it was very rare if you were a black child uh, growing up uh, in the middle class, as I did, and he, of course, was affluent. Um, Everybody had to take ballet. Everybody had to take tap. Everybody had to take piano lessons. You had to participate in the arts. And you had to know something about history. That was so. Not you didn't have to have any talent. the The idea was this is what would make you a well rounded human being. Now you have all cuts to all of these things. So we all have to find innovative ways. We have to go back to basics in some respects 
We can't afford not to be able uh, to talk to people on the other side of the room that we may or may not like or may or may not uh, may feel we don't have anything in common with them. But that is exactly what ML did. He was able to do that. You know, you were, uh, we were talking here previously about Vernon. Uh, or is it John Vernon or Vernon John? Vernon John. It's Vernon John. Yeah, Vernon John. And uh, someone just sent me an email saying that uh, Vernon had the Malcolm X personality. And he, <laughs> he sent along a quote. And I quote, that last week a man, this is uh, Vernon John speaking, that last <laughs> week a man was fined for shooting a rabbit out of season. Mm-hmm. A rabbit is better off than a Negro because in Alabama, the N-word are always in season. In yes. That quote. Yeah. And, Vernon uh, Johns also was guilty. Vernon Johns also refused to get up on the bus, and I think he scared the bus driver. Mm-hmm. He told the bus driver, when the bus driver asked him to get up, he, Vernon Johns, a minister, said, I told him I'm going to sit right G.D. there. And he told the congregation, he said, that I do believe that God approved of the way I used his name that day. Oh, yeah. Now, was yeah. Vernon, was he a native Alabamian? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. And my best guess is that um, I, I I learned about him via, actually, a book about Martin Luther King. And then there was a film. There is a film where James Earl Jones uh, portrays Vernon Johns. I, would, I can't. I think it's just called the Vernon John story. I don't know what the availability is, and I think when it came out, it probably came out on VHS, so we can hope that it will come out on DVD. But I think uh, he had another quote that said, if you see a good fight, get in it. (laughs) And, (laughs) yeah, and I think, though, Vernon Johns ran into what I would call a relatively affluent congregation, um, that was, for all practical purposes, um, trying to protect the little bit of privilege um, that these kind of congregations could could acquire. Uh, One of the things that I think uh, people forget uh, about these folks, I'm not excusing everything that they did, but people protect their privileges. If you've been given just a little bit more wiggle room and we're going to be able to do this and do that, the last thing you want to do sometimes is rock the boat uh, on behalf of somebody else, and then what if we lose all of the privileges? Um, and he was, for all practical pur- purposes, more abrasive um, than Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Jr. had a way of chastising where it didn't sound like it. Uh, I would encourage anybody that, I, I think you probably can find it on YouTube, listen to the I Have a Dream speech. It's not just great oratory. It's almost great poetry. It's prophetic. Uh, he manages to um, move pe- I mean, it, it's one of those speeches where no matter how many times, you never get tired of listening to it. Exactly. Because it does exactly, um, I don't know if he adopted this from, from John Wesley Dobbs, who was a great, great native son and the grand, grandfather of our first black mayor, Maynard Jackson, whose philosophy was, his oratorical philosophy was, start low, go slow, move higher, strike fire, then sit down in a storm. And 
uh, and I'm sure to be. That's I, certainly, I, describes, that certainly describes the "I Have a Dream" speech. Yeah, and King was also heavily influenced uh, by a man that doesn't get a lot of national recognition, uh, Reverend William Holmes, Williams Holmes Borders, who was a pastor of Wheat Street, and uh, he and another gentleman by the name of Reverend Larry Williams used to sneak out of Ebenezer and go listen to Borders preach. And uh, if you can find, I don't know if, if they're available, if you listen to uh, Borders, you do find some very striking similarities. So there, there, there is no shortage, if you will, of influences. But we are talking about individuals who are, for all practical purposes, at least in Atlanta, and I'm going to assume that the same thing would be for Birmingham, uh, they walk a tight rope. On the one hand, uh, we have got to do something for the mass of Birmingham citizens. On the other hand, if we do the wrong thing and offend the wrong white officials, then will we become powerless? So I think when when I brought up the whole issue of class, uh, that's what I meant, is that the perception was that there was a select group of Negroes that a few white people downtown would talk to. Uh, what what will happen if they don't talk to us anymore? Exactly. You know, you were talking about influences, and uh, uh, getting back to uh, Vernon Johns, uh, apparently influenced by the fact that he was a graduate of Oberlin University, that abolitionist school up there in Wilberforce, Ohio. Absolutely, yes. And that's probably where he got a lot of his fervor. Uh, yeah, yeah, because it was, this is the only school um, that opened to everybody, male, female, black and white, as a matter of practice. Uh, it's also the first school by 1892, I mean, its School of Music actually has, I've always been impressed with this, by 1892 it had an official chair of music history uh, at a time, and uh, Leslie Gist, and, and, and I'm gonna, I'm, I know she's going to eventually get after me about all these facts, um, history as a discipline, sometime around between 1890 and 1920 is when you see things like the social sciences and the humanities start to be professionalized. So this is the period where you start to see people who are professional sociologists, professional historians, professional political scientists, because you have this shift from, say, you're beginning to see all of the problems that come with cities you know, drunkard husbands, uh, prostitutes, all of the things that we still have now. And you have what we call the, the progressive era in American history is one we date between something like 1890 to roughly 1920, and that's when you have all of these professions. And, and so you begin to see people literally majoring in these things. They start to have classes uh, in these things. But I would have to say that, that his influence uh, as a Oberlin, Alum, um, and there are probably other factors as, as well. Um, not everybody is. Uh, I'm not a good diplomat. My mother was a great diplomat. No, I'm not, <laughs> my mother was a fabulous dip diplomat. My mother could have you eating out of her hand. Um, I have a moment where I say, you know what? I've had just about enough, and I'm, I've gotten better with age. But the fact is, is that 
because I don't think we can underestimate Vernon Johns's um, influence in that church, in Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, because by the time he left, he had said enough and done enough to stoke the consciences of at least enough of the members. So when Martin Luther King Jr. walked in there, and he was young and dashing and exceptionally well-educated, and he essentially started talking about some of the same things, Vernon Jordan was his warm-up man. I don't think he would have been as effective at that church if Vernon Jordan hadn't been there and created, so to speak, the kind of turmoil and chaos. You mean Vernon Johns? Vernon Johns, I'm sorry. I keep saying Vernon Jordan. I forget. Vernon Johns, exactly. I don't think um, ML would have been as successful uh, at Dexter uh, Avenue Baptist Church had he not been there. That's just my opinion. Um, okay. because, yeah, isn't, that's. Go ahead. You know, isn't there uh, September 13th? Is that a celebration of the uh, John Price rescue that happened there in Ohio? I am not as familiar with with that, so I can't really. I don't know the 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 year 1963 is, uh, which is my theme for the year for my U.S. history class. There there has there were so many uh, events until I almost literally have to to uh, write them down. I am not familiar with that one though. Well, no, this happened back during the abolitionist period. Um, in reference to John Price, was an escaped uh, slave made his way north and uh, uh, was rescued. Uh, again, someone involved, this is where Vernon, in that atmosphere there in Ohio at Oberlin, uh, where his personality was developed, uh, he viewed himself as a boat rocker. Yeah, and I think um, we need boat rockers. Um, we need boat rockers, but we also need, uh, I've learned uh, the hard way, we need both. Uh, there's an unfortunate trend, uh, I think, in Western society, and regardless of, of where our ancestry is, is from, we are products of the Western world um, that says you either do this or you do that. Um, the idea that W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington were deadly enemies um that's a falsehood uh they disagreed about some things um but a lot of times um a, a lot of people don't know that that Booker T Washington would would smile at white people's faces and take money and then privately fund um educational programs for for black students in other places he was exceptionally good at uh I don't think I've heard one historian whose name I can't recall uh describe him as being possibly uh, the most powerful black man uh, that's ever been in the United States, Um, save maybe President Obama, Uh, because he could do things like call the White House and say, I want this man to have this position, and it would be taken seriously. Um, So I think Johns, he was a boat rocker. I think it's important uh, to recognize those in- individuals. They don't always make the history books, uh, which is why I, I said to you earlier, uh, there are a lot of other stories uh, that we need to be uh, aware of. And we also need to be talking to our own families. 
uh, not just to people that we think have a particular note. I think that's one of the bigger mistakes that, that black Americans make is sort of underestimating the value of the stories that our parents and grandparents tell. Because trust me, um, I have I was a museum fellow. Uh, I, I see how much value, and when I say value, I mean literal monetary value, uh, that people who are interested in African-American memorabilia. Uh, I had someone once offer me $5,000 for a portrait of my uh, grandmother, which I couldn't possibly sell because it is a portrait of my grandmother. But the reality is somebody was willing to pay me $5,000 for it. And what that means is is that if we don't start taking seriously uh, our personal stories and our family stories and writing them down, then we are going to continue to have what I call a false narrative, uh, a narrative that only gives favor to uh, what we call big man, and I guess you could say big man, big woman history, where you talk about the presidents and you talk about the senators and you talk about the people that are very public, but you learn a lot less about the masses. I think it's stupid. I think um, I think every time you want to alter, I saw some of the stuff and I just stopped reading it. Um, the problem with doing that is that you are creating yet another false narrative. Um, And typically, the one good thing that might come out of creating a false narrative is that most children, when they reach a certain age and they begin to question what they've heard, they begin to question what you said, all they have to do is find another book somewhere that contradicts it. And then this is where, this is typically where your radicals come from. I've, I've met many, many white radicals who became radical because they said, I just discovered that everybody that I grew up lied to me. And I think what they're really trying to do um, is de-emphasize, I think, the uh, the, uh, contributions, of course, of a very large Mexican-American population. And for those of you who don't know, uh, Texas used to be Mexico. Uh, as well as California, so we're not talking about a people want to say that this is a new population. I think um, I think we're in the throes, uh, and historians. I'm going to do something that historians typically don't do, uh, and that is make predictions. But we're in the throes of the decline of, of Western civilization. Um, no great civilization keeps its luster or its power forever uh and for a variety of reasons um you get so big uh you can't afford to keep everybody i mean it it costs more to take care of an american than it does say someone in southeast asia uh we are seeing a shift uh china is on the rise india is on the rise in spite of some of the very mind-numbing reports that come out of Africa. There are many, many African nations that are on the rise. Uh, I predict that before you and I retire, a third of Africans will be fluent in Chinese. Um, Oh, I'm already retired, so that's probably already happening. (laughs) Yeah, that's probably already happening. So (laughs) what we are seeing when a civilization is in decline, when you have been accustomed to power, when you have been accustomed to prestige, when you have been accustomed to saying, I want this, and you get it. And suddenly, that doesn't happen for you. 
the first thing you go for is, well, we must get a grip on all of these other folks that seem to be intruding on our culture. So everything's under assault. I think um, whether one agrees with everything President Obama has done thus far, I think everybody would agree that the tactics that the forces that that were against him, the, the, the extremes that they went to, quite literally sent a lot of people to the polls that might not have shown up at the polls. Uh, in Florida, I think people were voting as late as, as 2.30 and 3 o'clock in the morning, and the election had already been won. They were just simply That's determined to I vote. Heard. because, Yeah, so we have the the Texas uh, uh, thing is not isolated. It is not exclusive uh, of, 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 of Texas. I think Texas is unique in some ways um, only because it's always had this sort of you know, this Lone Star, Texas almost ended up a state. I mean, ended up its own nation uh, at one point. But I think Texas is just a symptom of a larger trend. This is the last gas. We have to do something. And people don't give up their privileges. I mean, that that's the one thing, I mean, that, that, that I think sometimes escapes individuals. If you have a privilege and it seems threatened, uh, you fight for it. You may or may not be racist, but you're going to fight to keep your privilege. And I think this is where, uh, this is why we're seeing so much pushback in so many different uh, directions, the Tea Party included. You know, and if they really knew the history of the original Boston Tea Party, they wouldn't name themselves that. Because exactly. they were a bunch of cow- they were a bunch of cowards too. I mean, they dressed up like Mohawk Indians, so the Indians would get blamed. I don't. I'm not sure if. It really registers sometimes. Uh, they have the right to believe what they want to believe, but I think it. it uh, I think sometimes people really miss. Um, they have idealized some of these things and, and romanticized these things in ways where they don't actually know uh, the real history. So I'm not. Uh, I think I will be concerned if no parents uh, speak up about this. Um, but I don't think it's something that uh, I think we always have to be vigilant. I don't think there's ever going to be a time when you can just say, oh, everything's going to be fine and no one's going to want to change or alter anything. I think we always have to be vigilant. I have to be yeah, vigilant. Please. I got Yeah, I got new information that um, I wasn't anticipating. Leslie, um, we're going up to uh, – we. We've run over our time here. Absolutely. Yes, we have. Uh, it's been so engaging and so interesting. But before we leave, uh, contact information. You mentioned that you have a blog. Uh, yes, that Perhaps it our is. listeners could visit and yes, uh, perhaps some contact information. Yes. Um, you can uh, reach me at L, letter L, J O Y, dot theater, and that's T H E A. T-R-E at gmail.com. Um, you can visit me at lesliejoyallen.com, and I better spell it because I do have a different spelling. It is Leslie spelled L-E-S-L-Y-E-J-O-Y-A-L-L-E-N.com. And, um, the lines are open? Yes. The lines are open. 
Yes, my name is Faith Morris. I'm the brother of our sister, Diane Morris. She, she's a oh, woman. Yeah. Hello? Yes. Uh, uh, yes, my name is Faith Morris. Uh, I'm the brother of our sister, Diane Morris. One of our four girls that are kids in the church bombing. Okay. Do you have a radio on in the background? Um, my TV. Let me turn it down. Yes, can you turn that TV off for us, please? We're getting feedback. This is okay. Fate Morris. Yes, Fate Morris. This is Miss Allen, Mr. Morris. Just call I, me I, Joy. I, yeah, what's your uh, what's your comment, Mr. Morris? Uh, I called the record straight for for years. Uh, uh, her name has been uh, known as Senator Diane Weston, but reality that I, I have proof of that she she was never adopted by the Weston family. She died Senator Diane Morris. And she was not adopted? No, and she never was adopted. And I have proof of that, and and, and I also have been on several uh, TV shows and and, and actually before Miss Wester died, she came to the door with John 13 News and admitted that the sister was never adopted, and she died of Morris. Mm. But uh, the city of Birmingham... Don't want to recognize that fact that for 50 years that that name has been incorrect. Okay. Uh, before we continue, I want to advise the people in the chat room that my chat uh, has been disconnected. And uh, so, how long did it take you, uh, Mr. Mars, to get that information changed to get it corrected? Well, uh, I've, I've been. Uh, I started uh, like. Twenty years or more doing that. I, I, I first I had a lawyer, and, and she she made sure that she was on the right track and and, and proved that no is no record of her ever being adopted by the Western family, and and uh, um, it took me uh, um twenty years almost. The, Get that, that record straight, but it's still not straight because, uh, as you notice, uh, the statue that going up downtown is, is still with it on, on that statue and shouldn't be. Wow. And uh, for 50 yeah. years, I, 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 you know, it, it's been like that. And but I don't know why, but it, it, it seems like the uh, state of uh, uh, Birmingham, uh, Alabama, don't want to change that name for some reason or another. I don't know. Hmm. So will you be making a plea to the city fathers to get that changed on the street? I have. I have done that. I, I even uh, talked to uh, the congresswoman about it. Hmm. And how's that looking? Does it seem? Do they seem favorable? Well, she she's recognizing, but she's she's doing my trip to Washington D.C. for the gold ceremony. She mentioned the fact that you know, uh, uh, since Mars, but she didn't uh, actually say that she was gonna make that change, a uh, 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 legal change to her name. Do you yeah. still reside in Birmingham? Yes. Mm. 
and and I'm I'm not gonna stop until this thing is settled. I mean, it's been too long. Yeah, Mr. Morris, can I ask a question? Yes. Uh, yeah, Mr. Morris, this is this is Joy. I told you to call me Joy. You don't have to call me Miss Allen. Okay. Um, is the award awarded to Cynthia Wesley or is it Cynthia Morris? Cynthia Morris Wesley. They put it as Cynthia Morris Wesley. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. That that I I you know because I'm I, I'm thinking I I don't know we I don't know exactly where. To, uh, the gold medal itself it says Cynthia Wesley. It does say Cynthia. They haven't. In fact, it, it, it's her name is still Cynthia Wesley yeah. on the medal. Right. Wow. Hmm. After yeah. all my interviews with the news and approve my proof of information and everything, they they still uh, refer her to uh, Cynthia Wesley. And and correct me if 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 I'm wrong. When when we spoke the the first time. You said that your sister was staying with the Wesleys because she was going to a different school. And where and they, they, they wanted her, her to uh, um, uh, uh, have a better uh, life, uh, school life, and so okay. she on uh, stayed with them uh, through the week and came on uh, home on the weekends. Okay, so what what it was is that that I take it it sounds like Cynthia was sort of smart. Yes, she was very smart. Okay, okay, and you were 11 years old when this happened. Right. Um, no, no, I, I was younger than that when that happened. How old were you? When she got killed. How old were you when she got killed? I was 11 years old. 11 years old, okay. Okay, you were 11 years old. I'm just trying to sort of wrap my head around uh, the state uh, actually amending the death record, saying right. that her name was Cynthia Diane Morris, right, and then, then. people not being able to, um, I just don't know. I, I wish I'll be honest with you. I wish I knew what to tell you to do. Uh, I it, this is going to drive me crazy until I figure out what the real uh, issue is. I promise you, I don't. I don't have any money. I don't have any vested interest. But I'm going to keep looking. Because it just there's something about this that just seems like either there's something there's something we don't know, and that that's what it get that's that's the feeling that I get. I think it, it no matter what the the actual outcome of this is, I think it needs to be acknowledged, if nothing else, that she was born Cynthia Diane Morris. Yes, and and and, and that, that that that's a part of history, and and, and it should be uh, corrected because, uh, I mean, you you get you got the children going to school, learning uh, history, but not the, the uh, correct history. Yeah, yeah, and that 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 cannot be. Right. Uh, oof, this is a little different. Preston, can the you read? I have a question Hi. as well. Hi, this is, this is Leslie, uh, Leslie, uh, Jay yeah. Allen, and hello, yeah. Mr. Morris. I uh. just wanted, this is History World, and we have Mr. Morris on the phone. I'm so glad that you called. Could you just talk to us a little bit about who your sister was and give us the personal connection of everything that you recall from that fateful day? I mean? hmm I, I, I didn't hear you. Repeat it, question. 
Yeah. I, I can barely hear you, Leslie. Yeah, you're a little oh. muffled. Okay. Um, I'm, That's better. Okay. I'm asking him to just talk about his sister and that faithful day. Oh, that's a sad day for me, and I, I, I hate it. talking about it because uh, uh, um, I, I was 11 years old when that bomb actually went off, and I heard it. I was, uh, I lived uh, exactly three blocks away. Mm. When that happened, uh, my friend came by and got me. We were uh, to the church, and there was a, a, a crowd of people already there. Police were there, of course. They, they was everything blocked off, and my friend and I we start helping digging through all the debris, and uh, um, at the time I I didn't know my sister went to that church, so there I was unpiling bricks after bricks and looking for her bodies, and when they announced the first body, it was like uh, a man said. I have a body over here, and when they said the second one, another person cried out, "I got another body over here." By the time they said, "I got a body over here," but she has no head, I left. I ran. I went home, and later my friend came by and told me that what, what happened. You should have stayed. The, the girl that they found with no head, that was your sister. But I didn't stay. Um, I didn't stay. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I didn't stay. No, it's not your fault. No, no, no. It's not your fault. You let it go. Oh. I can't, I can't. It's not your fault. This is just bothering me the bones. And I, 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 I'm crying every night. Uh, three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, I'm crying because I didn't stay. I, no. I left my sister there, baby. I know. All the breaks. I, I, I can't get this Listen, you listen to me. You listen to me. You were 11 years old. Your sister knew that you loved her as long as I live. I don't care if they change the record or not. I will always address her as Cynthia Diane Morris because that's who she was born as, okay? Thank you. I'm going I, Whatever I can do, and I don't know what I can do, but as long as I can, I will keep this going. And I am going to let the historians in the department at Georgia State University know that I have been in contact with you. Don't you dare feel guilty. You, don't you dare. You did, you did what any boy would do. I wish I could lift this. But please know, please know that the reason why I got involvement um, and being a catalyst to bring this information forth to the public and your continued effort is much appreciated, and I'm sure the gift of freedom uh, stands behind both of you and and keeping this record straight. Yeah, yeah. I think it's important. Yeah, I I think it's important because uh, there's a lot of misinformation out there, and and a lot of times, you know, you sort of walk past it. But uh, I tell my students all the time not to forget 
that behind these tragedies, behind these events, are real people. They're not just on page 57 and they disappear by the time you get to page 59. These are real lives lost, um, real people exploited, perhaps. Um, and at it, 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 if, if nothing else, uh, Mr. Fate Morris deserves to have his sister recognized as his sister with her given name. Exactly. Yeah, with her given name. If the state of Alabama is willing to do it, then um, I don't see why everybody else is having such a hard time with it. Uh, but I would really like to know why. And I think he, I think he deserves that. Even if it's an off, even if what he finds out is just terrible, at least you know why. Uh, at least you have can 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 get some kind of peace. Um, um, that's an awful, um, that's an awful thing for anybody. Um, Mr. Morris, are you still there? Yes, I am. Don't ever think that you are totally alone. Uh, I have. Uh, I did lose a family member in, in a violent death, and our family has suffered with nothing quite this drastic, but um, there are people out there who will fight for you uh, and who will. I'll keep your name out there as often as I can. Thank you. And I will keep this issue out there. Uh, right, I've got, uh, I promised Erish that I was going to publish uh, a, a bibliography for Project One Voice, but I think I think we all might need to do a little uh, sit around the kitchen table and strategize about how we will bring this information to light in some way. Thank you. You still on the line, Leslie? Yes? Yes. Oh, which you talking to the other Leslie? The other Leslie. Yeah. Is she still Is she there? Gone? Hello? Leslie Gist? Okay. This is Charles Reese. Hello? This is who? This is Charles Reese. Okay, oh, Charles Reese. Charles Reese. Yeah, I didn't know. I've been this listening. Is, this is a friend. This is a friend of mine, uh, Preston. He is a wonderful, wonderful actor. Um, he has done. Well, don't worry about that. Don't don't worry about all that, Leslie. I, I just want to jump in quickly because I I've been listening, uh, Mr. Morris. I wanted to say peace and blessings to you. I sat here and cried. I'm in Los Angeles, and I sat here and I cried. I've been listening to the whole been listening for about the last 45 minutes, and I want to say to you as well is that if Professor Leslie says she's going to do something that's going to get done, I just want to commend you all because I actually learned so much. Um, just standing, I'm standing in a library parkway because I could not move for the whole last 45 minutes. So I have just been listening and listening in. And history is one of those things whereby we are beginning to revisit we learn and rediscover all these things that we didn't know, and I'm so grateful that I know that her name was Cynthia Morris, and that's all I got to say. Peace and blessings to you all. It was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful uh, listening exercise for me today. Thank you. Thank you Thank so you. much, Charles. Love you. We appreciate your comments. Are there any other callers on the line? Any other callers on the line? Have they have they left us? Okay. So we don't have any right now. Uh, here again, uh, we are over time. I appreciate everyone's involvement. Um, Mr. Faith Morris, I appreciate your calling in and sharing 
your narrative with us, and that is one of the chief purposes of the gifts for freedom, is that we as black people have to take over our narrative and get yes. our story out there. Yes. So yeah. I, I really appreciate uh, your calling in and giving us that information, because it was certainly lost to history. Um, you and were probably the only one that knew that, and now we've got it out there, and um, I'm sure that you will have people rally around you, and that that narrative, your narrative, will be repeated, and people will know the real story. Yes. Appreciate that. Joy, do you have a closing comment? Um, the only thing I can say is that, uh, as a historian, um, we sort of live for these moments. Some don't, because uh, some people don't want to change the narrative, uh, particularly if they've helped write it. But one of the requirements uh, for being a historian is that history is a never-ending quest. Uh, in fact, that's part of the definition that the American Historical Association gives. It's a never-ending quest for the truth and to interpret the past. So to a large degree, even if even if I didn't feel something personally, I mean, this is a black man, I'm a black woman, we have lost black girl, he lost uh, his sister in this. I'm supposed to feel that as a human being, but as a historian, I'm supposed to continue to pursue all the information that I can find to make sure that we have this story correctly. So, Mr. Morris, I, I can't make any promises about how big the story will be, but I will promise you that I will not let it go until somebody gets it into their head that we need to at least acknowledge that this was her birth name, that this was your sister, that you had the same parents, uh, and um, I, I pray for you. Uh, I will be in touch. I'm not going to call you on the anniversary. I may give you a quick buzz on Saturday, uh, the day before, just to see how you're doing. Uh, but you have my number, uh, if you, and you also have my email address. If you run across anything or you have any questions, um, send it to me. Uh, I'll get back to you just as quickly as I can. I will. And God Thank bless you. Thank you, Jerry. You're so welcome. Thank you, Mr. Mars. And uh, with that, we'll have to close the program. My name is Preston Washington. I've been your host here for the Gifts of Freedom. I would also remind you that this program will be archived and available at iTunes at blackhistoryuniversity.com. Thank Thanks, you, Preston. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Mars. Thank you, Preston. Okay. Good night, Good night everybody. Good night, everybody. Bye-bye.